Joining us today on the Dialogos Radio and the Dialogos interview series is John Perkins, the author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman. John, welcome to our program today. Thanks. It's great to be with you today. In your book, you write about how you were for many years a so-called economic hitman. Who are these economic hitmen and what do they do? Well, essentially, uh, my job was to identify countries that had resources that our corporations want. And that could be things like oil, or it could be markets, it could be transportation systems, locations, there's so many different things. Once we identify these countries, to arrange huge loans to these countries, but the money would never actually go to the countries. Instead, it would go to our own corporations to build infrastructure projects in those countries, uh, things like power plants and highways that benefited a few wealthy people as well as our own corporations, but not the majority of the people who couldn't afford to buy into these things. And yet they were left holding a huge debt, very much like what Greece has today, this, this phenomenal debt. And once bound by that debt, we would go back, usually in the form of the IMF, and in the case of Greece today, it's the IMF and the EU, and make tremendous demands on the country, uh, increase taxes, cut back on, on spending, uh, sell public sector things to, to private companies, things like power companies. And, and uh, water systems, transportation systems, privatize those. In other words, basically become a slave to us, to the, to the corporate corporations, to the IMF, to, uh, in your case, the EU. And uh, basically, the organizations like the World Bank, the IMF, the EU are tools of big corporations, what I call the corporatocracy. And before turning specifically to the case of Greece, let's talk a little bit more about the manner in which these uh, economic hitmen and these organizations like the IMF operate. You mentioned, of course, how they go in and they work to get these countries into massive debt, that money goes in and then goes straight back out. You also mentioned in the book these overly optimistic growth forecasts that are sold to the politicians of these countries, but which really have no semblance with reality. Exactly. You know, yeah, we'd, we'd like to show that uh, if these investments were made in things like electric energy systems, that the economy would grow at, at phenomenally high rates. And the fact of the matter is, when you do invest in these big infrastructure projects, you do see economic growth. Uh, however, that most of that growth reflects the, the wealthy getting wealthier and wealthier. It doesn't reflect the majority of the people. And we're seeing that in the United States today, for example, where, you know, we, we, we can show economic growth at times, growth in GDP, but at the same time, unemployment may be going up or staying level, and uh, foreclosures on houses may be going up or staying level. So th these numbers tend to reflect the very wealthy because they have a huge percentage of the e economy, statistically speaking. But nonetheless, we would show that, that when you invest in these infrastructure projects, your economy does grow, and yet we would even show it going much faster than it, than it ever conceivably would. And, and that was all used to serve to justify these horrendous loans, these incredibly debilitating loans. Is there a common theme with regards to the countries that are typically targeted? Are they, for instance, rich in resources, or do they typically possess some other sort of strategic importance to the powers that be? Yes, all of those. You know, like it was really dependent. So resources can take many different forms. So one is the material resources like minerals, oil, and, and, and other minerals. Another resource is strategic location. Another resource could be big marketplaces or cheap labor. So different countries make different requirements. And I think actually what we're seeing in Europe today is, is even different from all of them, and, and that includes Greece. 
What happens once these countries that have been targeted are indebted? How do these major powers, these economic hitmen, these international organizations come back and get their pound of flesh, if you will, from the countries that are heavily in debt? By insisting that the countries adopt policies that will sell their publicly owned sectors, such as utility companies, water and sewage systems, maybe schools and transportation systems, even jails to big corporations, private corporations, privatize, privatize, allow us to build military bases on their soil. Many different things uh, that, that can be done, but basically they become servants to what I call the corporatocracy. We have to remember that this we, we, today we have a, a global empire, and it's not an American empire. It's not a national empire. It doesn't help the American people very much. It's a corporate empire. Uh, the big corporations rule. They control the politics of the United States. To a large degree, they control a, a great deal of the policies in countries like China and around the world. We are speaking with John Perkins, the author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman, here on the Galagos Radio and the the Galagos Interview Series. John, looking specifically now at the case of Greece, of course you mentioned your belief that the country has become the victim of economic hitman and of these international organizations. What was your reaction when you first heard about the crisis in Greece and about the measures that were to be implemented in the country? Well, I've been following Greece for a long time. I've, I've, I was on Greek television. Uh, several, for several years, and uh, a Greek film company did a documentary called Apology of an Economic Hitman. And I'd also spent a lot of time in Iceland and in Ireland, and in, I was invited to Iceland to help encourage the people there to vote on a referendum not to repay their debts. And I did that and encouraged them not to, and they did vote no. And as a result, Iceland's doing quite well now economically compared to the rest of Europe, and Iceland's considered to be in the European zone. Ireland, on the other hand, I tried did the same thing there, but Ireland, the Irish people apparently voted against the referendum, although there have been many reports that it was probably, you know, that, that, that in fact the Irish people may have voted for the referendum, but there was a lot of corruption. And in the case of Greece, watching this, my again, my reaction is Greece is being, is being hit. You know, there's no question about it. Uh, the, the people, sure, Greece made mistakes. Your leaders made some mistakes, but the people didn't really make the mistakes. And now the people are being asked to pay for the mistakes that were made by their leaders, often in cahoots with the big banks. So people made tremendous amounts of money off these so-called mistakes. And now the people who didn't make the mistakes are being asked to pay the price. And that's consistent around the world. We, we see it in so many places. We've seen it in Latin America. We've seen it in Asia. We've seen it in so many places around the world. And this leads directly to the next question I had, which is, from my observation, at least in Greece, the crisis has been accompanied by an increase in what I would describe as self-blame or self-loathing. There's this sentiment in Greece that many people have that the country failed, that the people failed. There's hardly even protests in Greece anymore. And of course, there's also a huge brain drain. There's a lot of people that are leaving the country. Does this all seem very familiar to you when comparing to other countries in which you've uh, had a personal experience? Sure, that's that's part of the game, you know. Convince people that they're wrong, uh, they're inferior. You know, we, we, we we're, we're, the corporatocracy is incredibly good at that. It, whether back during the Vietnam War, uh, convincing the world that the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese, were evil and, and lousy and poor today, it's the Muslims. Or you know, it's it's a, it's a policy of the them versus us, and we are good, we are right, uh, we do everything right. You're wrong, and in this case, all this energy has been directed at the Greek people to say you, you, you're late 
lazy, you didn't do the right things, you didn't follow the right policies, blah, 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 blah. Where in actuality, an awful lot of the blame needs to be laid on the financial community that encouraged Greece to go down this route. And I would say that we have something very similar going on in the United States where people are here are, are being led to believe that because their houses are being foreclosed, they were stupid, they bought the wrong houses, they, they overspent themselves. The fact of the matter is their bankers told them to do this. And around the world, we've come to trust bankers, or we used to. We used to trust bankers. In the United States, we, we never believed that a banker would tell us that we could buy a $500,000 house if, in fact, we could really only afford a $300,000 house. We thought it was in the bank's interest not to foreclose. But that changed a few years ago, and bankers told people who, who they knew could only afford a $300,000 house to buy a $500,000 house. Tighten your belt. In a few years, that house will be worth a million dollars. You'll make a lot of money. In fact, the, the value of the house went down. The market dropped out. The banks then repackaged these houses, foreclosed on them, repackaged them, and sold them again. Double whammy. The people were told, you were stupid. Why did you ever buy such an expensive house? You were greedy. You were stupid. But in uh, actuality, the bankers told them to do this. And we'd grown up to believe that we could trust our bankers. Something very similar on a larger scale happened in so many countries in, around the world, including Greece. In Greece, the traditional major political parties are, of course, overwhelmingly in favor of the harsh austerity measures that have been imposed. But also we see that the major business interests and also the major media moguls, the major media interests in the country are also overwhelmingly in support. Does this surprise you in the slightest? No. Well, it, it doesn't surprise me, and yet it's ridiculous, because austerity doesn't work. We've proven that time and time again, and perhaps the greatest proof was, was the opposite. In the United States, during the Great Depression, when President Roosevelt initiated all these policies to put people back to work, to pump money into the, the economy, that's what works. We know that austerity does not work in these situations. We also have to understand that, you know, in the United States, for example, over the past 40 years, the, the middle class has actually been in decline in a real dollar basis while the economy has been increasing. And in fact, that's pretty much happened around the world. Globally, the middle class has been in decline. Big business needs to recognize, it hasn't yet, but it needs to recognize that that serves nobody's long-term interest, that the middle class is the market. And if the middle class continues to be in decline, whether it's in Greece or the United States or globally, ultimately businesses will pay the price. They won't have customers. You know, Henry Ford once said, I want to pay all my workers enough money so they can go out and buy Ford cars. That's a very good policy. That's wise. This austerity program is, moves in the opposite direction, and it's, it's a foolish policy. In your book, which was written, I believe, in 2004, you expressed hope that the euro would serve as a counterweight to American global hegemony, to the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. Did you ever expect that we would see in the European Union what we are seeing today with austerity that is not just in Greece, but also in Spain, Portugal, Ireland, Italy, and uh, several other countries as well? Well, by the time I wrote my latest book, Hoodwink, I certainly did. It was, it was, and, and really, Confessions of an Economic Hitman wasn't dealing quite so much in that subject. But what I didn't realize during any of this period was how much corporatocracy does not want a united Europe. We need to understand this. They may be happy enough with a euro, with one currency. They're happy to a certain degree by having it united enough that markets are open. But they do not want standardized rules and regulations. Because let's face it, the big corporations, the corporatocracy, takes advantage of the fact that some countries in Europe have much more lenient tax laws. 
Some have much more lenient environmental and social laws, and they can pit them against each other. You know, what would it be like for big corporations if they didn't have their tax havens in places like Mars? and other places. I think we need to recognize, I think that what the corporatocracy saw at first, a solid euro, a European Union, seemed like a very good thing. But as, as it moved forward, they could see that what was going to happen was that social and environmental laws and regulations were going to be standardized across the board. They didn't want that. So to a certain degree, what's been going on in Europe has been because the corporatocracy wants Europe to fail, at least at a certain level. You wrote about the example of Ecuador, which after the collapse of oil prices in the late 80s, it found itself unable to pay back the very huge debts that it had accumulated. And this, of course, led to massive austerity measures. It sounds all very similar to what we are now seeing in Greece. How did the people of Ecuador and also other countries that found themselves in similar situations, how did they eventually resist? Well, Ecuador elected a pretty remarkable president. Rafael Correa, who has a PhD in economics from the United States University, he understands the system. And he, he understood that Ecuador took on these debts back when I was an economic hitman and the country was ruled by a military junta that was under the control of the CIA in the U.S. And that, that, that junta took on these huge debts, put Ecuador in deep debt. The people didn't agree to that. When Rafael was Correa was democratically elected, he immediately said, well, we're not paying these debts. Uh, the people did not take on these debts. Uh, maybe the IMF should pay the debts. And maybe the, 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 the Junta, who are, of course, long gone, moved to Miami or someplace, should pay the debts. Maybe John Perkins and the other economic hitmen should pay the debts, but the people shouldn't. He refused to pay the debts. And since then, he's been renegotiating and, and bringing the debts way down and saying, well, we might be willing to pay some of them. That was a very smart move. It reflected also similar things that have been done at different times in places like Brazil and Argentina, and more recently than following that model, Iceland, uh, with great success. And I have to say that, you know, Correa's had some real setbacks since then. He, like so many presidents, have to be aware that if you stand up too strongly against the system, if you if the economic hitmen are not happy, if they don't get their way, then the jackals can come in and, and assassinate you or overthrow you in a coup. There was an attempted coup against him. There was a successful coup in a country not too far away from him, Honduras because uh, these presidents stood up. So we have to recognize that these presidents are also in very, very vulnerable positions. And ultimately, we the people have to stand up it's because the leaders can only do a certain amount. And today, in many places, leaders are not just vulnerable. It doesn't take a bullet to bring down a leader anymore. A scandal, a sex scandal, a drug scandal can bring down a leader. We saw that happen to Bill Clinton in the United States. We saw it happen to Strauss Kahn of the IMF. Uh, we've seen it happen a number of times. So these leaders are very aware that they're, they're in very, very vulnerable positions. If they stand up and they go against the status quo too strongly, they're going to be taken out one way or another. They're aware of that. And that be means that it behooves we the people to really stand up for our own rights. You mentioned the recent example of Iceland. Other than the referendum that was held, which you mentioned earlier in the interview, what other measures did the country adopt to get out of this spiral of austerity and to return to growth and to a uh, much more positive outlook for the country? Well, it's been investing money in programs that put people back to work, and it's also been putting on trial some of the bankers that caused the problems, which has been a big uplift in terms of morale for the people. So Iceland's launched uh, some programs that say, well, no, we're not going to go into austerity, and we're not going to pay off, pay back these loans. We're going to we're going to put the money into putting people back to work, and ultimately, that's what drives a, an economy: is is people working. 
you know, if, you, if you've got high unemployment, uh, like you do in, in Greece today, extremely high unemployment, it's the country's always going to be in trouble. You, you, you've got to bring down that unemployment. You've got to hire people. It's so important to put people back to work. You know, I, I think your unemployment rate today is something 28%, something between 25 and 30%. It's staggering. And disposable income, I believe, has dropped something around 40%. And it's going to continue to drop if you have high unemployment. So the important thing for an economy is to get the employment up and get disposable income back up so that people will invest in their country and in things that, that, that goods and services. In closing, what message would you like to share with the people of Greece as they continue to experience and to live through the very harsh results of the austerity policies that are that have been implemented in a country for the past three years? Well, I want to draw on Greece's history. You know, you're a proud, strong country, a country of warriors. Of you know, the mythology of the warrior to some degree comes out of Greece, and and so does democracy. And to realize that you know the democ that the the marketplace is a democracy today, and how we spend our money is casting a ballot. Most political democracies are corrupt, including that in the United States. The democracy is not really working on a governmental basis because the corporations are in charge, but it is working on a market basis. I would really encourage the people of Greece to stand up. Don't pay off those debts. Have your own referendums. Refuse to pay off. Go to the streets and, and strike, as, as I know that, that recently there have been some strikes, that the Greek people are standing up to this, that, that some of the country's largest labor unions have, have been striking and stopping transportation systems. At least I know that's been planned. And so I would encourage the Greek people to continue to do this. Don't accept this criticism that it's your fault, you're to blame, you've got to suffer. Austerity, austerity, austerity. That only works for the rich people. It does not work for the normal for the average person of the middle class. Build up that middle class, bring employment back, bring income back, disposable income back to the average citizen of Greece. Fight for that, make it happen. Stand up for your rights, uh, respect your history as, as, as fighters and leaders in democracy and uh, show the world. Well, John, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today here on the Galagos Radio and thank you for sharing all of your insights and your experiences with us and our listeners. My pleasure. It's been really a joy to be with you. Thank you.